And it is a function of time. It does keep getting worse. I'll give you another example. Sometime during my life, sometime during my life, toilet paper became bathroom tissue. I wasn't notified of this. No one asked me if I agreed with it. It just happened. Toilet paper became bathroom tissue. Sneakers became running shoes. Car crashes became automobile accidents. Partly cloudy became partly sunny. House trailers became mobile homes. Used cars became previously owned transportation. And constipation became occasional irregularity. It's the Loose Filter Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Sims, and with me are two of our co-hosts. Lissette Sims. And Anthony Campolo. And we have kind of a long introduction to a full-length episode that is outside of our normal wheelhouse, right? We normally, I mean, we're, we don't have much of a box. I mean, literally, it's in the name of the thing, right? The loose filter. We're pushing that idea, though. We're really loosening our filters for this episode to talk about something that we think is really important. It's something we want to talk about because it is happening all around us. We're living through something that is really fascinating and kind of unprecedented. And a big part of what we're living through is created by culture and the tools that we use and have invented to make and share our culture. And that is right in our wheelhouse. And what we want to talk about is something called hyperreality, what it is, how it happens, and why it matters, what its impact is, why we're even talking about it. Why do you want to hear about this? We're going to be looking at the cross-section between technology, mass media, and culture, and how they've started to influence each other and go in ways that are unpredictable and complex, and that even the people working in these fields don't exactly have a handle on the big picture and what's happening with it. And I think that this is a really interesting topic for us because it's something that, like Stuart says, we're all living through. We're all experiencing it together simultaneously. And we don't really have a great vocabulary, I think, for talking about it right now. And this is an attempt to create vocabulary to talk about what we're all experiencing. And this isn't some sudden or spontaneous thing either. It's something that's been talked about for a while now and has been kind of a process over time that has grown into something quite overwhelming. Right. We're, t- we're now talking about it a degree. This has been, like you said, it's been going on for a while. Yeah, it's this just didn't now just gotten pop out of nowhere. Point where, though, it's having some effects that are we need to be aware of significant significant effects and to anthony to your point having a vocabulary to talk about it means that you have clear ideas like the concepts are clearly defined for you in your own mind so then that you know you have a term to express that idea too right it's about getting the ideas in people's brains and getting a handle on a little bit of what we're living through and what we're describing i should say that the bulk of this episode is a conversation that Anthony and I had just yesterday to us now recording this 
with Dr. Keith Nainby, who is chair of the Department of Communication Studies at uh, Cal State Stanislaus, where I also am fortunate to teach and uh, is a colleague I have known for years and have had many wonderful conversations with. And we finally sat down a couple of weeks ago, he and I did, and had a conversation focused a lot in his discipline and one of his areas of specialty, but it started out as talking about the world, right? And specifically, we're talking about the election of Donald Trump in the United States and how for a lot of us, this is an astonishing thing to have happened conceptually, let alone all of the practical, political, real life things that are happening every day. For this show and this episode, we're talking about the conceptual stuff, not the real world stuff. Not that we don't think that the real world stuff is utterly, absolutely important, but that would be really far outside, of course, the scope of what we normally talk about. So this is all about understanding how this sort of extraordinary thing may have happened and a lot of other things around it and why we need to be aware of it because there's more to come. The first thing we want to do in our introduction to our conversation with Keith is talk about hyperreality as a concept. We wanted to introduce and define it. And the first important idea there, I think, is mediation, which means what it sounds like it does. With mediation, and we're talking about specifically technological mediation, but in a general sense, mediation occurs when information or an experience is encoded in some way, in any way, symbolically, physically, in any way. It's changed from the real world, realness of it, so that it can be shared, transmitted, a lot of good reasons that we do that, and then decoded by the person receiving it. Our bodies do this all of the time, right? Light rays hit our eyes, and there's an organ there that converts them into nerve impulses that go to our brain. Same thing with our ears, same thing with our sense of touch. So our bodies mediate information to our brains all the time. And we've talked about before on the podcast how the foundation of our ideas of consciousness now that you don't know it's real, you only know what is being fed to your brain as real. And that sort of basic observation about human consciousness, your brain is the origin of your consciousness primarily, and it's stuck inside your skull, so only receives information through your body. So we live on mediation. And then, because human beings are clever, we went and started inventing tools that allowed us to extend that mediation. Tools and shared languages and shared customs that allowed us to communicate things. So the first and most obvious one would be the written text, how we were using that to transition out of an oral tradition where we told all of our stories orally and now we could write a story down and 
reproduce it and share it and send it over vast geographic distances. You wouldn't necessarily have to go there and tell that story because now you could send the written text. In fact, it's Keith pointed out in our conversation, you actually, with oral culture, there was a point where early humans didn't have language and then we had language. That's symbolic, right? We figured out a way to encode our thoughts and our feelings in discrete sound packages that had meaning. So that's representational. That's not direct. And even things like drumming, you know, one town would drum something to another, and that's taking an idea, turning it into a code, and it has to be encoded by the other village. Traveling, transmitting it somehow, and then it's decoded by the receiver. Exact smoke signals. Mm -hmm. As Keith pointed out, and I hadn't thought, of course, this deeply, which is why we went to an expert. And trust me, we're not delaying the conversation with him to hear ourselves chew around on this topic. The stuff that we're laying down here, you need to have it in your head reasonably well because Keith sort of runs with it and says some really fascinating stuff, but we sort of feel like it might help to build in this foundation. So we've got, as Anthony said, we get all the way up to the printing press. We go from the oral to the written, and the written is really, that's the external, that's the technology. Like we invented a thing outside of ourselves. The printing press really was the huge sea change because it allowed people to create concrete physical artifacts that were easily reproducible that could represent dense information and could be spread around and this led to what it was we, the mass production right so suddenly production. knowledge now was more accessible in mm-hmm. a literal sense if you could read it right and of course what's the first thing that gutenberg with his printing press the bible and he printed it in the vernacular he took it out of latin put it in jar so normal folks who were literate could read it And, of course, that leads to the Protestant Reformation. Exactly. There's a feedback effect to that where more written text and books incentivizes more people to learn to read, which then incentivizes more books to be printed. And then you get this cycle to where we all of a sudden have fully literate societies. And that is really what changed because it allowed everyone to participate in knowledge production and the spread of knowledge. So the tools shape us, right? We make Mm -hmm. the tools and the tools shape us. Of course, that gave us empiricism, scientific method, and the enlightenment (laughs) leading into the Industrial Revolution. And the next big media, communications media jump then was in the late 1800s, early 1900s, broadly speaking, without shortchanging the telegraph, the instantaneous nature of the telegraph, but we can't do a whole communications media history. But... Audio amplification, transmission, and recording. And that was huge, especially going into World War II, because the rise of fascism in Europe, to a fair degree, was enabled by things like the microphone and the loudspeaker, that Hitler's voice could be heard by thousands of people, etc., other fascists of the era. And it also began an era of being able to much more realistically recreate reality. I can hear someone's voice on the radio or on the telephone talk to them. And to my mind, it's as if they're there with me somehow. Even though I know it's not really there, there's a sense that they are there in a removed way. So the level of sophistication of the technology at that point starts to intrude on in an important way on what we can recognize as literally real, empirically real, and real in the sense of true, 
or real in the sense of just a phenomenon you're experiencing. And those are different things, right? It's something our organism didn't evolve to understand, which is why we want to talk about it. Because if we intellectually can get it, we can maybe adapt to it. But it's not built into us to understand what's going on right now, the world that we've lived into, that our tools have shaped us into. something that increases as people maybe become more aware and more literate over time throughout history that people feel the need to create a narrative for them to believe if you go back far enough people who would kind of look up at the emperor and go okay the emperor is going to take care of everything i'm just going to take care of my farm and they didn't really engage in any political thought they didn't really think about the systems of their society they just lived in it but now i feel like there's this kind of need almost to create this narrative for your society in order to, I guess, manage it would be one way to put it. Or to create some sort of outcome you want to manipulate or to influence or to write. And because we spend so much time receiving our information about the world and our experience of the world through mediation, through these mediums, these media, we are vulnerable then, like you said, to someone. First of all, it kind of creates, and we'll break this down in a second, but a sense, a need for narrative. But then that can be taken advantage of by someone who can more easily create something that's false and and have you believe that it's Exactly. It's ultimately always a narrative and not reality. Another part of that is there's an asymmetry to it in the ability for one person to spread a specific message to a broad amount of people through having control of certain communication channels. So that's exactly why the people who want to use it in specific ways can find ways to use it that allows them to have a greater power. Is that the is that the origin of the demagogue in the modern sense? That like when when I have a microphone and a loudspeaker, we're not having a conversation, right? It's it's you listening and I'm talking. It's a one way transmission in that sense. That continuing evolution of the tools of the media continues with video transmission and recording into networked multimedia computers and devices. And each iteration of this, as the tools get more sophisticated, the issue here is that they present reality, quote unquote, more and more convincingly as compared to actual reality, right? As our TVs become more and more high definition, they're going to hit the definition rate of our eyeballs, which are not least, super high def, actually, we've learned. Or at least they make it more appealing than reality. Or, or even more dangerously, it's better than reality. Yeah. Cypher in the Matrix, right? I don't care. I know this steak isn't real, but I don't, I don't care, care because it's the best steak I've ever had. And it's perfectly curated to me. Exactly. It's exactly the perfect thing I And ignorance is bliss. So I'm gratified. Oh, wow. Okay, so 
Well, said you alluded to this. As that mediation grows in sophistication, too, what we've noticed is that it's transparency. Uh, in other words, your ability to know if it's accurate or true in an objective sense, a shared reality sense, is diminished because, again, the more sophisticated your ability to represent reality, to create a narrative, motives like profit, power, swaying opinion, manipulation, or other propaganda come into play. And we saw it in our modern era, this sense of mass media and how it can get inside people's minds and perceptions of the world they live in was during World War II. And it was wartime propaganda, which really was the first mass weaponized mediation that we experienced as a species. Exactly, because in World War II, it was entire countries versus each other. It wasn't militaries against each other. So if you were a scientist or if you were an artist, you went to war also. So that's why science was weaponized through the atomic bomb project and through radio and media became weaponized in the same sense that they saw the incredible strength they had in being able to create a narrative that could create cohesion among a society and that could rally them among a single point. Well, and look at a film like The Triumph of Will, right? And Riefenstahl uses, unfortunately, a brilliant and incisive filmmaker's eye to use a succession of images to create an indelible propagandistic impression in the viewer that's really effective even when you disagree with it. You see how amazingly persuasive that piece of propaganda is. You may be anti-war, but you'll still get over there stuck in your head. <laughs> that's, boy, that's the truth. We could go on and on about that for a while, but it's really, it's this weaponization of mediation. And here's the crummy part. Coming out of World War II, and uh, Adam Curtis, who we'll talk about in a minute, a decade and a half ago did a documentary for the BBC called The Century of the Self. And traces how this wartime propaganda was turned to civilian use after the war. There was a person in particular, but groups of people who learned these skills and who learned from them and then thought after the war, you know, I could use this to make a lot of money and sell stuff. So then we have the origin of advertising and public relations. And I don't mean this to sound too cynical, but is an ongoing invasion of our inner selves by mediation because I say the wartime propaganda was turned to advertising and public relations because the insight was you can use mass media to manipulate people's emotions and their desires and their sense of themselves. Which leads to manipulating their actions. Which leads then exactly because when you get in someone's head, you're affecting their imaginations, the way they think of themselves which exactly, Anthony, it affects the way they behave in actual objective reality. Whether that's purchasing or voting or any desirable outcome like that. And we do have a fundamental need as human beings to remain somehow acceptable by our peers, I guess. You want to remain part we of the quote-unquote tribe. We are social animals, absolutely, tribe. yes. And so you, you're like, okay, what social signals do I need to send in order to remain culturally acceptable? And so you're programmed to constantly want to fulfill everyone else's expectations of you. And so it's like consume. It's weird because it is part of who we are as human animals, but it's been used against us for profit motive. Come on now. Smoke and mirrors, stripes and stars. Stoning for the cross in the name of God. 
bloodshed, genocide, rape, and fraud. Written to the pages of the law, good law. The cold continent latchkey child ran away one day and started acting foul. King of where the wild things are, daddy's proud, cause the Roman Empire done passed it down. Imported and tortured the workforce and never healed the wounds or shook the curse off. Not a grown-up Goliath nation holding open auditions for the part of David. Can you feel? Nothing can save you. You question the rain, you get rushed in and chained up. Fist raised, but I must be insane. Cause I can't figure a single goddamn way to change. But welcome to the United States. Land of the thief, home of the slave. The Grand Imperial Guard, where the dollar is sacred and power is gone. And really, really. I mean, it's pretty nefarious. There's no supervillain here stroking the goatee and laughing maniacally other than uh, it's us. Like Pogo said, we've met the enemy and he is us. It's our own nature. It's our own need to try to hoard stuff. Greed, power, influence. Yeah, it's less a, a conspiracy. Love, you know. Yeah, it's less a conspiracy and more of just a outcome of how human behavior and desires work. <laughs> and <laughs> the th- interplay of our tools and ourselves. And I think this is why some people argue that Huxley maybe was a little more accurate than Orwell, that it isn't some evil plotting genius kind of thing, that it's really our own weaknesses as people will make us susceptible more so than anything else. Right. So if you're freaked out by Donald Trump, read Brave New World, maybe. This just continues over the last few decades, including all of our lifetimes. If you are alive now and certainly aware enough to listen to this recording, we continue to see it grow and develop. And we haven't taken a step back to look at it and what it's been doing to us because we've been so swept up in the happening of it that, you know, when you're swept up in a tornado, it's a little hard to step back and say, well, let's take a look at this tornado. How big is it? How fast is it going? What direction is it going? But that's exactly what we need to do because we don't have any choice. We see this advertising public relation goes into like infotainment and social media and self-curation and so forth. But this saturation in a sensory environment, our point in all of this introduction is it's a sensory environment of increasingly self-referential symbols. And Keith really draws this out really well and lucidly. But the symbols point at themselves over and over again. And again, the technology gets increasingly sophisticated, infinitely reproducible. And that's an important one, right? It's no longer mass production because it's digital. It's just infinite. It's not even reproduction. It's just replication I guess well and it's exponents I mean ultimately it's going to be evolving and producing faster than we can as human beings a really important part of this is how we're talking about concepts that were developed throughout the 60s and 70s but they've been supercharged by our devices the fact that we all have these devices now on us 24 7 and we're all hooked into these social networks now and we're all producing so much more data So that's why I think this has led to a saturation point that is creating much more outsized effects. It's been easy to say that these people have been crying wolf because society hasn't collapsed yet and they've had these ideas since the 60s and 70s. But I do think we're really seeing a difference now that is important to look at because the tools have made it so, as they say, software is eating the world. Everything can just be reproduced because it's all code. And if my comment about Hitler wrinkled your brain, Hitler in the loudspeaker, if you hadn't quite made that connection, think about the fact that Hitler today could sit in front of a laptop and record a video and put it on YouTube and everyone in the world 
with minimal network access to the internet and any form of gadget able to play a video from it, which is to say billions of people right now, and that number increases as we go forward in time, then if we all decided to look at the same thing, that person's ideas now are transmitted on a scale that you just said, Lisette, we have never, our organism has never even, it would be like if one of us caught a virus, it could simultaneously infect any other human organism somehow. Yeah, regardless of distance. Regardless of distance. And that has created a vulnerability for us in terms of peacefulness in life. That's why we're, it's like it's red alert, we think. So it simultaneously makes us the most powerful and vulnerable we've ever been. Irony. The universe continues. The one constant in the universe I've noticed that is non-physical seems to be irony. Or maybe it's just the beauty of the fact that we have a sense of humor and can appreciate <laughs> so, irony. Right. That's the gift of being human, that we have the gift of humor and can actually recognize what oh, irony is. Oh, yes. The gift of life and cognition is that you know you're going to die. <laughs> oh, well. Okay, that got uh, modeled. So anyway, that, that saturation in this sensory environment of increasingly self-referential symbols that are rendered by technology that's increasingly sophisticated, infinitely reproducible, ubiquitous and cheap it overwhelms and confuses human consciousness and that results in a state that we call hyperreality. hopefully landing on that definition with all of that 20 something minutes preamble made it make sense because it's a tough concept it's real slippery because we're we're so in the thick of it it's like the old joke about the fish you know swimming swimming in the water you know what's what, what's water it's hard to see your water I think there's a certain sense of people really don't want to buy into it because it's really disempowering to a certain sense to think that we don't have control over our environment or our decisions or the things that are manipulating us. But that's why I think talking about this and creating a vocabulary allows us to be more empowered over these subjects instead of feeling like passive observers as citizens to be an engaged citizen requires us to have a vocabulary to talk about these things now and will allow you a more deep and profound life experience because you're able to disconnect from that hyper reality yeah and notice it and having a name for a thing has power because making something a concept lets you work with like you said anthony and i think a lot of you if any of what we said or what you hear on this episode resonates with you and you're kind of thinking aha, aha that's what that is that's this process of getting a vocabulary with that said, we will close our introduction. There is more to say about this. We have a subsequent episode. We're going to trace the thought by recent and, and contemporary scholars and thinkers in these fields to give you, if you're interested in this, we piqued your interest, some firm reference points that you can go out and explore and enjoy. But for now, I want you to enjoy this really terrific conversation that Anthony and I had with Keith Naby. Do you know you have more nerve endings in your stomach than in your head? <laughs> look it up. <laughs> now somebody's gonna say, I did look that up and it's wrong. <laughs> well, mister, that's because you looked it up in a book. <laughs> Next time, try looking it up in your gut. <laughs> I did. And my gut tells me that's how our nervous system works. <laughs> now, I know some of you may not trust your gut yet, 
but with my help, you will. The <laughs> truthiness is, anyone can read the news to you. I promise to feel the news <laughs> at you. It's the Loose Filter Podcast, and this is Stuart Sims with uh, my co-host. Anthony Campolo. And we have a special guest with us here for the conversation for this episode, Dr. Keith Nainby, who is chair of the Department of Communication Studies at CSU Stanislaus. Keith, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, and we're going to talk, the broad topic we've been talking about that we've contextualized a little bit already is, uh, and you and I have talked about this, Keith, and, and we're here, Keith is here kind of to make sure that we're not crazy, <laughs> and because... Wow, whiskey roll for me. We're taking... <laughs> We're taking the the theme of the podcast generally the loose filter. We're really on the loose part of it, but uh, we were talking before we turned on the microphones about how a lot of creative work generally is just an expression of the time and place you live in mm -hmm. in some way, and so I don't think it's that uh, strange for a couple of musicians to sort of jump over into media more generally and how it affects us, and then suddenly we've stumbled into your specialty and domain. So we wanted to ask you about your sense of What's going on in our world now, because it's often hardest to like the old story, the fish swimming through the water, right? What's water? It's, it's right. often hardest to, to see your water. Help us not only understand what's going on, but why, hmm. I guess. So you and I had talked about how we probably are in a state of advanced hyperreality. I think that's accurate. What does that mean? Can you explain that in a way that's been more cogent than the way Anthony and I have been able to get after? Well, I think a good example, actually, is I just came back from a conference where uh, there was a panel I was a part of, and one of the panelists was discussing, this is actually somebody in our own department, Daniel Horvath, was discussing uh, Mad Max Fury Road, uh, which, as you might recall... It's a great film. Phenomenal. Yeah, I, I yeah, awesome film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what's nice about that film, uh, and what was the subject of the panel, is the way in which it provides an opportunity to think about how an approach to a film text like that might differently invite us as readers to think about the role of women and to think about it as a feminist text. This was the sub subject of the panel. What's interesting about that is that one of the assumptions embedded in the panel for both the Mad Max film and other films that were discussed is this notion that Mad Max was precipitating some trolling online, especially from folks who were sort of seen as reflecting sentiments of anti-feminist backlash, in particular because they saw Mad Max, Ghostbusters, other films like this, as remakes that were potentially disrupting originary texts that were somehow important. That had to, the female characters shoehorned in somehow. was the, Precisely. This is the, the argument. Star Wars, the new Star Wars movies got that as well. Both Another ruined with episode, female protagonists. Yeah, episode right. seven and, and Rogue One. Exactly right. Uh, and the reason I bring this up as an example, you're following it, is to suggest that this is so is actually to misunderstand what an originary text might be. So, for instance, I mean, I was born in 1970. I was absolutely the target market for a film like Beyond Thunderdome uh, in every respect. Which and I remember vividly. <laughs> the way I was hailed as a target market as a 16-year-old was, hey, remember those awesome Mad Max films with that rogue Mel Gibson from a couple of years ago? And when you actually take a look at those texts, you realize... Every single moment in the film trades on a nostalgia for World War II era films that are sort of hyper patriotic or Wild West films that frame, you know, these kinds of uh, masculine approaches to violence and outlandish behavior as a way of solving social problems. And that to treat the Mad Max films with Mel Gibson at the heart of them as somehow originary texts 
that needed to be protected from the invasion of Charlize Theron and other women uh, is to right. really seriously misunderstand the relationship of nostalgia and text to some past that never existed and to some reality that never existed in either the Old West or uh, the, the Between the Wars era in the United States. And so I think that hyper-reality means to me a context in which messages have a kind of texture of meaning that always orient to a signified that's not really what we think it is, right? That what's happening is messages point to one another nearly ubiquitously rather than pointing to some deferred originary experience. So we're tied up in the symbol. We can't find Precisely. a fixed reference point or a reliable reference point for what the symbol is meant to point to or, or exactly. signify or frame or whatever yes. so the the noise has overtaken the signal potentially if we think of it as noise or i would suggest that this is true from my discipline's perspective that on some level um floating signifiers have always been sort of the most representative aspects of human communication and that one thing that happens in a kind of hyper-mediated environment is we're drawn we, we draw our attention to that we become recognizable we like to simplify because we needed to simplify to to hunt to get the things we needed so this in-depth rationalized kind of argument was really almost something we invented and now it's hard to now we're losing i think the ability to do it because everyone now is being exposed to so much short-term easy solutions i was just going to say i mean symbols become uh, to go back to this notion of human beings in the wilderness right i mean symbols become a way for us to make sense of a set of sensory inputs that are far too complex for us to ever deal with in any non-simplification right we need an operating system that's right and then what happens i think you're absolutely right is that over time the symbols become their own justification the operating system perpetuates itself whether it's moored in any kind of reality or not and that's that's what I think hyperreality does, and I think what it does is hyperreality accelerates over time because we create a larger and larger context. Right, it's exponential. It's because it's, it's feeding right. on it's more itself. more self-referential to itself. Exactly right. If someone grew up in a cubicle, as Plato once suggested, they would only know the cubicle and not the world outside it, and they wouldn't view the cubicle as something geometric. We only know it's a cubicle because we live outside. Now the one inside the cubicle can't comprehend its measurements. Measurements are models made of foreign by observers relative to their position on the outside of the cubicle to understand objectively so they can study further. If I grew up in a cubicle, the walls are in my universe. I have no knowledge of the entirety like the outside is too. If you follow what I say and can swallow the powdered water, close your eyes and open your mind. This one's for you. The brain equals the cubicle. will never think outside and I decide and why to try to tie a diagram and modify it. I'm a man that's a hybrid of a body, a pirate of a soul that can fly without control. Realize the brain takes in six billion signals per second. Most of which are hidden and not given to the senses We're limited to a few futile primitive tools of perception Living in a universal pool of first-hand deception The mind's job is to receive the signals And block out the ones that don't coincide with imprinted symbols That way the information you obtain is recognized Reality is thinkable and comparable to space and time It makes a map of the territory that gives us the topic of the Copenhagen Interpretation of modern quantum physics with states We don't know the meal We only know the menu that our brain tells us is real We don't know the rules of our heads No, from inside these cubicles we can't see the truth no one really knows exactly what happens when we think. Therefore, we can never really ever know anything. This is the consciousness revolution. You got the right to think. Don't think about it. Just do it. This is the consciousness. Where does this desire then? Because it seems like it's turtles all the way down, right? Yeah, because, right, right. because I mean, like a Star Wars is the one that's been unpacked. If, you, if anyone who claims any purity about that ever, it's like, well, 
George Lucas was making Flash Gordon with some World War II escape films, and he read his Joseph Campbell and had his sure. hero's journey. And, you know, and Campbell, I mean, that's that's the book that goes, none of these stories are new. Sure. It's the same. And here's why. Instead of a black cowboy hat, it's a black helmet. <laughs> exactly. Otherwise, it's I mean, the it's same literally, story. yeah, it's barely different Which symbolism. Which is, I think, yeah. why remix culture has been so successful because it embraces that. But, so, okay, so then we shouldn't have, if we get that, if we understand that the symbols really only ever point to, at, if you ever get to the bottom, it's really just like an idea or something complex that we're trying to reify or simplify mm-hmm. or, or, or apprehend in some way. So there seems to be in our culture a desire, like you were talking about people railing against Fury Road, that there was a desire for real, for authenticity, mm-hmm. for this prescriptive, Truth. It's not like we had that and we lost it. Right. It's like we got so mixed up in the self-referentiality or the symbols pointing at the symbols that our heads are spinning and the only way we can think to express it is maybe what's, I don't know what's real. I think that's right on target. In fact, a more recent example of this in our political culture that's really disturbing to me is in the controversy over Betsy DeVos's nomination hearings, we saw a cartoonist appropriate the Rockwell painting that includes Ruby Bridges. I saw that, yeah. And I mean, it's it's nauseating to see, but I think it's absolutely symptomatic of the kind of cultural context you're describing, where the idea is there's a political cartooning frame, and that political cartooning frame licenses any reappropriation of any symbol for any use. And I feel sensitive to the fact that as a communication scholar who absolutely argues that we constitute social realities through our symbol use, I think that the political cartoon frame does create that environment. And at the same time, I can't mitigate my own troubled response to that, right? And to the feeling that there's a kind of reappropriation there that on some level is a loss. Right. For those who don't know, he's talking about a political cartoon from a couple of weeks ago when, I cannot believe I'm going to say this phrase, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos went to visit a public school, middle school, elementary and middle school yeah, in Washington, right. D.C., and, and protesters kept her from entering the school. And the artist took Norman Rockwell's very famous painting of, uh, what's her name? Ruby Bridges. Thank you, Ruby, <laughs> thank you. Being escorted and the horrible epithet that was scrawled on the wall That's by right. her yeah. that was then changed to conservative. And, and you're right, the transference there sort of misses the point and is more offensive than anything. Well, yeah, okay. So, I agree. You say it's accelerating. So what is tending to drive this? Is it saturation with the symbols? So there are just so many and they point at each other so quickly and they're reappropriated and recontextualized so quickly, it's going to accelerate and get more massive and that's its own thing. And then there's this whole other part of it that we've been thinking about and talking about, the gadgets themselves, Mm -hmm. the the medium itself, the looking at the screen, Mm -hmm. the way that we don't know our information directly by talking to real people in our communities that we encounter in space in actual physical space <laughs> so it seems like there's those two things going on right and you described hyperreality in the context of the symbols and the, the accelerating amount and rate of uh, adoption and repurposing and so forth what about the gadget piece how big how big is that yeah I mean I think I think both of the two vectors you just described are a part of that acceleration process I think part of it is a kind of cultural zeitgeist right now which involves a very deliberate appropriation and reappropriation of discourse to particular ends. And I think that that's a process that accelerates because over time, the only way to make your bones as, for instance, a political commentator or a political cartoonist or a candidate, 
or somebody trying to rally folks at a town hall meeting is to engage in a particular kind of reframing. And I think that that reframing involves reappropriation of discourse. So that's one vector, I think, that you're appropriately describing. But I think that the techne themselves, right, the elements of mediated communication are also a part of this. I mean, I, I certainly think as musicians, you can appreciate this. There's this sense that I have as a, as a lay listener that we lose something when too much of the time music is produced by folks who haven't had an opportunity to develop chops playing live, but instead have spent all of their time in studio contexts, all of their time in sort of technized musical context. And I think you can hear the difference. And we, I'm not a musician. We notice that it has affected the way songs are composed. Mm. Now, it's gone through the songwriting uses all these tools as shortcuts to what you describe. We now have a generation of folks who learned on the tools. Their imagination is framed by the tools. Mm -hmm. It creates the axioms of how they create their art. Yeah, I think that's right on target. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier before we were on mic, OK Computer. I love mm -hmm. that album. And at the same time, I think that as responsible for this trend in popular music as anyone are Tom York and Johnny Greenwood. Except Johnny Greenwood is also a real composer. Like sure. real, he's there were real composer before. That's a ter horribly, uh, horrible way for me to phrase that. He is a concert composer, a, right, right. a notated, a notation-based, right. that's what I meant to say. He's a notation-based composer also. But he of makes, music of some complexity. But he makes use of compositional tools, uh, and so does Tom York, that I think get then taken up by folks who yeah, don't have access to pros. They, were, they, were <laughs> they did it enough. well. It yeah. was, okay. <laughs> they used it as the correct seasoning and didn't make it the whole meal. That's my perception. Yeah. They understood the bones, how to, how to uh -huh. make the bones yeah. good. Yeah, And that's the kind of thing we talk about all the time among specialists is that craft will out. I mean, something that is well made, that's what tends to sustain, even if people only intuit. How well true. constructed the, yeah. the thing like, is. To pimp a butterfly will survive for 100 years regardless of how much terrible gangster rap was created. You know, in the same breath, really, as saying that there is this kind of dumbness a little bit. Uh, I don't think that's an unfair description of songwriting. There's also a lot that these folks are doing that's really interesting and fascinating and innovative. It's just that I wish I want to eat my cake and have it too. Like right. I, I want, I want someone who is savvy and culturally contemporary, but also has real craft in how they compose their work. You're and a typically hungry cultural citizen. Exactly. Yeah, and it's. I think that's why we love the stuff we get that hits all those buttons as much as we love it, and we never want to let it go ever for hundreds and hundreds of years if we can help it, because <laughs> it is that hard to get it right. Yeah. To to do it that well. With that as background, if that's what's going on, how do you think if someone's listening to this episode and they understand your description, okay, we're in this world, okay, I want to unpack a little, I just want you to repeat and unpack a little bit of what you said, your fundamental view of human communication. 
I mean, I'm strongly persuaded by constitutive approaches to communication. So what that means, if you're not an academic and listening to this program, is that I don't think that there's communication that's unframed for us ever. It's just that those frames are often frames we learn over the course of time to habituate and take for granted. So they become invisible. That's right. Yeah, okay. And I think in some respects that's important because we can't, in the same way we can't attend to all of the sensory input and we necessarily reduce it and simplify using discourse. I think even our discursive frames themselves need simplification. We can't move through the world as young people constantly noticing that our mother has given us directions in terms of behavior and that those are arbitrary directions selected by our mother, right? (laughs) We'd never learn to become adults. And yet at the same time, then we find ourselves, because of that forgetting process, shocked when that happens on a social level, right? Like, of, of course, there are authority figures who will arbitrarily frame particular groups of people as illegals, to use that exact noun. And that's no different than anything that's been happening in our lives since the time we were small. But what we notice is different about it is that it marks itself as a frame in a different way. And I think what's incumbent on us as communicators is to articulate that framing process rather than to allow it to be invisible and to lie in the realm of the habituated. Because I think if we find ourselves with the capacity to recognize frames and mark them as they come into discursive contexts where we find ourselves, we have the opportunity to have greater power as listeners and as speakers ourselves. And I think it's a kind of unlearning. And I'm guessing that this process that you describe, I want to unpack that a little bit. I think that's really important. What you just described, if I if I understood it accurately, it is also what leads to so much negative emotional response because it causes cognitive dissonance. People have mm-hmm. to reconceptualize something that has been assumed, mm-hmm. something that has been water. They mm-hmm. now have to think about right. breathing and walking and chewing gum, and, and, right. and, they, and they resent it because it's difficult and it's uncomfortable inside your head. Right, as something that's contingent. This is the word that I like to use for it, right? I mean, a fish doesn't learn that water is contingent until you take it out of the water. And then it suddenly is forced to confront the contingency of water. And I think we're in much the same space as communicators. We're forced to confront. I mean, I'll be honest about this. I'm somebody who reveled in the Obama presidency. And I reveled in the Obama presidency, despite the fact that he uh, reflected many values that are not my own, because it felt like a symbolic presidency to me in a lot of ways. It felt symbolic with respect to a kind of contemporary national climate of inclusiveness. And that was important enough to me to really embrace the Obama presidency as a symbol for that. And I recognize that what a Trump presidency forces me to confront is that's precisely how Trump was elected. Because people who don't necessarily share his values in my view at least, this is my analysis of the 2016 general election, people who don't necessarily share his values see his ascendancy to the presidential role as reflective of a certain kind of symbolic leadership, whether or not he reflects their values. And that's about me, and that's about how I lived in the Obama presidency. What people really are drawn to is the sense of confidence and strength and simplicity of solutions above all else it can be just so comforting because you don't have to ask the hard questions well and it takes it's it's and what you described earlier using the term the noun illegals is making people see the framing see Mm -hmm. the context it takes them into a meta space if you will Mm -hmm. one level Mm -hmm. up from where you're operating and so when i say oh we sort of shouldn't use that word and what you're trying to say is not hey, you're offending that person and you should mind their feelings. What you're really trying to say is using that term frames a person as a thing. And that is dehumanizing. 
Absolutely. And we should work not to dehumanize human beings Precisely. ever as a general. It's right in the Declaration of Independence, <laughs> for goodness sakes. It's in the first sentence. But what people hear, right, because you hit, there's the emotional reaction to don't tell me what to do, right. you elitist. But also, mm-hmm. I don't want to think about this right. <laughs> in a meta way. Right. I don't want to have to go up a level and think about how I conceive Yeah of those people because it's then kind of cognitive laziness. I yeah. can't otherize them. Right. Also, right? And it, it implicates themselves in it as well. Yeah. I think that's a very important. So point. no wonder they're mad at you when you say it. Well, because we do tend as communicators, this is a very strange reference, but there's a philosopher who's deeply influenced me named Calvin Schrag. And one of the things he believes is that our sense of ourselves as individual agents, the capital I in written English, is not something that is a human experience as much as it is a linguistic experience. In other words, radical idea here, and I'm not sure I entirely buy this I all think the I know time. what you're going to say and my mind's going to blow up. Go ahead. So it's this. It's that we, we have created discursive systems. The English language is the example I'm using here in which we speak and write English with the assumption that there is an author, there is a speaker, and that individual author or speaker who we orthographically reflect with a capital I in our language that's what creates for us and sustains for us as we age, as children and as adults, our sense of ourselves as individual human beings with agency. It doesn't mean we aren't that. It means that our sense of that doesn't primarily come from sensory experience or natural law as much as it comes from discursive habit. And I think that that's persuasive in a lot of ways. And it goes to your point, Anthony, about people's resistance to being accused of being responsible for, for example, racism or sexism. Because this philosopher Schrag uses the phrase self-implicature. And the assumption there is that when I speak and I use this discursive tools in which I constitute myself as an I, I am inviting myself to be implicated within the cultural discourse. And I think that people have a lot of resistance to that level of implication. This resonates for me with the Buddhist critique of the Cartesian theater of perception, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Descartes thought he had gotten down, the mathematician, the logician, had gotten down to the atomic unit, <laughs> right? Only mm-hmm. to find out that there are quarks. Into, right? right. But Great example. Th- that I think, therefore, I am. And the Buddhist then says, well, but there's one more assumption you've made, right. that your perception of a self means that there is a self. All you know is that you have the perception. This is an excellent connection, absolutely. And so what Schrag is saying, like the language itself, the way the English language as a medium, as a technology, right, if you will, mm-hmm. causes us to think of ourselves in narrative terms. And if it doesn't go so far as to cause, it at the very least strongly 
shapes encourage, the ways in which strongly yeah, encourages absolutely it's difficult to think outside of that is so i think how Shrog would put it and then of course the language would have been developed that way because we're storytellers anyway i mean it's sort of you get looping back in on itself if you get to pre certainly pre-literate right. human societies that we're still telling stories yeah. and so of course when we started creating languages of course we would have embedded that assumption absolutely that framing into without even knowing we wouldn't have wouldn't have had the ability even to see it, right? Because we couldn't talk about it yet. Right. We had to make the thing that let us talk about it, but the thing we made boxed us in even more. Well, and what happens... Here's the rub, right? You can't chew your own teeth. (laughs) Well, and I think you're right on target there because what happens when, even if it's true that it's inevitable that for a species like ourselves, discourses develop in which we implicate ourselves as a speaking author. If you imagine a group of people listening to a story, there's a storyteller and a group of people listening to the story and a whole cultural context and a shared set of values that shape narrative coherence within that storytelling moment. What happens when over the course of time, the reliance on that storytelling act itself creates a context in which there is no more audience, but there are only storytellers (laughs) speaking into a vacuum at one another. It's very hard for me not to see Milo Yiannopoulos rallies as precisely that, as a group of people who might have ever been sitting, perhaps with their knees crossed, legs folded, at, at the feet of a storyteller. We've now moved into an age where all we see are people barking out stories at one another, trying to speak more loudly and trying to get their stories to be more coherent than the other stories. And that's certainly what everyone was always worried and accused the millennial generation of being so obsessed with social media, being so obsessed with the me, with the my opinion, with the mm-hmm. sharing every minute of the day. I'm doing this. I feel this about this. Terrific that you get, connection. You get totally lost in your own expression and mm-hmm. your own opinion and you lose the other perspective, which is the only way to understand anything because everything is bigger than you. Everything is beyond your initial comprehension. And we, we wouldn't live. So I use this example very often when I teach my communication theory course, which is if you don't believe me when I suggest that we constitute social reality, step in front of a bus, right? And if I ask you why you don't step in front of the bus and you tell me that it's an instinct toward self-preservation, I'm going to say you don't know that because you've stepped in front of a bus or even because you've seen another human being do it. At least I hope you haven't. You know it because we've talked to you about buses and about walking and about human bodies. And that might seem like a trivial example, but I think it goes to the question of our ability to survive absent discourse, which I would say is next to zero. Another example I use in the same communication theory course is when... So we're a hive mind. Yes, because when the cats I've lived with my entire life reach the age of a few months... They're becoming close to sexually viable. They can almost reproduce. And here's what they can absolutely do. If you attack them, once they're six months old, you weigh perhaps 20 times what they weigh. They can still defend themselves for a time by scratching you. Probably what they're going to do is run away and hide, and you won't be able to find them anyway as soon as they perceive that you're out to attack them as a giant adult primate. We can't do that now, but we especially can't do it for the first, just to use an arbitrary number, nine to 12 years of our lives. If you attack a nine-year-old, first of all, your best chance to attack the nine-year-old will be to use discursive tools. But second of all, even if you discard the discursive tools and attack the nine-year-old, the nine-year-old is effectively helpless. 
And I think that we recognize that it's necessary that we have a social fabric and a set of discursive tools, first of all, to allow the nine-year-old to protect themselves, like screaming for help, right? right? But second of all, to recognize that we as a species have put our biological resources into communication as the primary technology in lieu of speed, we're unbelievably slow, in lieu of claws, in lieu of our senses like our sight and our smell, which are tremendously impoverished relative to many other mammals we live with. We've put all of our eggs biologically into the basket of communication. And metacognition. Yes, which I would argue is an artifact of communication. The, The way I'm sure that dogs don't metacognize is because I've never met a dog who uses a symbol. Dogs what, use what about signs, tool, but they don't use tools. Symbols. Tool making and, and transmission of knowledge. Now, that's a good question. We've seen tool making and teaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a good connection because some, as I understand it, some biologists would argue that what distinguishes primates as a category is that we're tool users. Hmm. So if that's the case, then we created a vulnerability when we created mm-hmm. symbolic communication. I think so. Which actually, uh, do you know Steve Mython? I don't. Wrote a book called The Singing Neanderthal, and he Hmm. maintains that music we know is much older than speaking. Hmm. And he says that he's a zoology sort of, I think is how he gets into his field. But his hypothesis is that the anatomical evidence we have of early hominids, certainly even early humans, is that we didn't have the anatomy to be able to speak yet, mm. but we could sing quite mm. effectively. Mm. And I've so, heard this argument, yeah. yeah. his thought is that we were very likely a singing species long before we mm. were a speaking mm. species. Because it's a form of, of community building. It's, and it's a form of expression and communication. Mm. And we see other higher order mammals do use vocalization, singing, keening, and so forth in highly communicative ways. Certainly dolphins, whales, so forth. Right, right. So that would mean that when we develop the anatomy to actually speak for our sounds to be symbols, right? It's like Stravinsky's famous quote. See, I knew we were going to find a way to tie this back into music. Yeah. It's like Stravinsky's famous quote about music can't express anything but itself. Right, right, Which right. a lot of people took to mean that it was right as he was getting heavily neoclassical and his music got austere. When but, he was pushing against Kurt Gödel and this argument that you can undermine mathematics by mapping symbols onto... Right, right. And it's it's just a bunch of sounds, man, was all he was trying to say Mm -hmm. is it's not you can't make musical sound symbolic Mm -hmm. you can't it's just a phenomenon right right? and so if we were a singing keening uh, organism creature then it can't be made symbolic it's only direct expression if I look at you and go you know you're pretty much getting what I'm throwing down without any subtlety right 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 what do you think he really meant by that is not a question I think you would ever ask someone who was screaming in your face right but as soon as we invented words uh, were able to make them sounds specific sounds and we entered into a symbolic realm Mm -hmm. you are saying that is so useful and so successful evolutionarily speaking right that that was the strategy. Why would we have other? Why would we have right. a plan B when plan A is so enormously effective? Now we clear trees. Now we make species extinct other than our we're own. Apex now we predator. can destroy the yeah. planet, right? We're yeah. going to destroy ourselves right. if we're not super careful. Your sense is that we've been on this accelerating curve. Absolutely. And of I think saturation and self-referentiality. I absolutely agree. It doesn't mean I think it's not worth the payoff. I mean, I like having access to my iPad. And I wouldn't like to live in a world without an iPad in which I, for instance, have to use a stick to dig termites out of stumps, right? Right, so, to, so I don't starve to death. Right. Yeah, so, exactly. So I'm not complaining, but I would say that it's an artifact. One of the other things I teach in communication is that any system we adopt is always more slow to change and more resistant to change than the context in which it was created. And that's inevitable. The need that created it 
is never as powerful as the inertia that keeps it once the need has been satisfied. Exactly right. Both John Dewey and Jürgen Habermas would argue the same thing, but this is the idea, right? Like, let's take graduation approval forms. The reason we have them is because students' progress toward graduation is messy, and we want to clean it up. We want to simplify it. So we put graduation approval forms into place. Now, what happens over the course of time is that the graduation approval forms become the goal that students work toward in order to graduate, right? And this is not unique to university graduation processes. This is endemic to every system human beings have ever developed. Because if the context in which the system is created is sufficiently complex, the system becomes necessary. But because the context is sufficiently complex, the system always includes the seeds of its own increasingly marginalized utility. That's what I would say. So where does so are we now it it feels like we've reached some sort of not just in the United States this is everywhere and this loops back to something I wanted to connect to your earlier comment Anthony about the social media and so forth now we have a generation of adults into their 30s mm-hmm. who grew up with this super focused solipsism we could like cynically call them the MySpace culture yeah, I mean, I'm sure somebody will come up with some sort of pithy epithet for uh, Anthony's horrible, solipsistic generation that's Aww, ruining the world. But we're no, the I'm worst. I'm kidding. <laughs> I kid. We're, we're, it's, it's still the baby boomers, everybody. Can we all just collectively still be angry at the baby boomers? Well, we for... were talking about the span of the whole species before, so yes, yes I agree it, with that collapse. It's the baby boomers' fault, <laughs> really. They screwed up millions of years. of. It seems like we have hit some sort of critical mass where this vulnerability now maybe, like Anthony said, the noise is just drowning out the signal to a degree that, is it dangerous? It, it feels dangerous to me because we cross the Rubicon now where reality, when it does assert itself other than kind of a violent, undeniable way, people are choosing, they're choosing the symbol world. What's your sense of that? Because that's that's the catalyst for this whole topic is, right, everybody, we went, ah, what's going on? Well, I mean, I think that that's an excellent question. It's why I brought up the Rockwell example, the Rockwell Bridges DeVos example, because I think that I have the same impulse. I feel in my gut a sense that, wait, this frame doesn't apply here, and it's inappropriate. And I think using the idea of communicative frames doesn't necessarily disqualify us from being able to make that kind of an ethical judgment. But I do think... Maybe one way in which you and I don't necessarily see the situation the same way is I'm not sure that I experience the same kind of crossing of the Rubicon. It seems to me that at some level, each successive generation, as technologies develop and as symbol use accelerates in the ways we've been discussing, would probably say the same thing. I mean, I suspect that if we were living in the Eisenhower era, people would imagine something like high-powered computing to be the sort of thing high-powered computing is going to lead us into hell. And then if we're talking about people in the Clinton administration, I'm sure we had people who were thinking the Internet is going to lead us into hell. And I'm sure that at a certain point, it's appropriate for us to say, if we live in a world in which nobody trusts any source of mediated information anymore, and we kind of cast aside any piece of information we don't choose to embrace and brush it with the label fake news, and we feel comfortable doing that because the most powerful person in the world does that multiple times a day in public. I suspect that in 30 years, people will see that as just as much of a trivial misunderstanding of technological possibility as someone would if they hear me say, we thought during the Clinton administration that the internet was going to be our demise. I'm not sure that I agree with the Rubicon metaphor because I'm not sure I could recognize where to mark where that transition happened. Maybe I'm naive. 
Yeah, it's really hard, and I think it really comes down to we've created so many small mission critical positions. I think, and when you apocalyptic put, tribes, when you put people. <laughs> in charge who don't think words matter mm. but words decide whether to launch nuclear bombs or not sure that's i think where the danger comes in i would agree so maybe the danger is more that we have a cohort of people who don't respect mm. the power right of the symbols yeah enough i think that's who a, don't that's understand that it. that's how we create reality yes as human i beings. agree yeah you're right because it's going to be words that are going to cause a nuclear weapon to be launched if a country does that. It was always so, right? So, I mean, what caused the first wars? Probably words like, I want your crops or your daughter, right? I mean, chances are those started wars too, rather than any... Well, I was thinking it's supposed to maybe like a resource war, right? My people hmm. are starving, yours aren't, we're taking your food, sorry. Some of these conflicts maybe started over things that are not concrete and real in a material sense. Like way. rumors that were engaged in missile testing in North Korea, for instance, whether or not exactly. these are authenticated. Or like the entire Cold War, mm. for just one example that springs to mind. I mean, we know, what was the whole, <laughs> the two brothers, and, and one went to Moscow and came back scared as hell. And, oh, yes. Right? Yeah, it was yeah. a book that was out a couple years ago on this. And their individual paranoia did more to create the Cold War than anything actual in the world. I'd be inclined to believe that if it turns out that World War Three begins in the Trump administration, it will have undoubtedly been started in the same way as the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand is described as starting World War One. World War Three under Trump will likely be described as starting with the incident in Bowling Green or the incident <laughs> in Sweden. And so I think that that suggests that you're onto something there, right? That doesn't, you're supposed to help us feel better. You're, not making, you're, you're articulating and helping me understand my fears in ways that are not assuaging them. But I think you both put it in a way that is exactly how I would put it as a disciplinary expert, which is that I think that recognizing the power that symbols have and that accelerated reliance on symbols as their own signifiers and signifieds rather than something that points to some external reality. The way I find hope in that is it suggests to me that the way we can transform our lives for the better, the way we can make social systems more appropriately focused on equity and uh, dismantling privilege is to become more savvy understanders of symbols and discourse. I think in some ways the histories of racism and sexism and heterosexism that we inherit feel more frightening to me if the only ways to effect change rely on material resource management. I think eventually they rely on material resource management, but I think they start with more effective understanding, and that gives me hope as a communication professor. I've found a little bit of optimism in the thought that we require these culture wars essentially to have these discourses and having them in such a hyper-accelerated manner makes us work things out a lot mm. faster, even though there's turmoil 
in the interim that it eventually arrives at a place where gay people are allowed to marry each other. Sure. Well, that certainly was my thought the other day when the Trump administration removed the protection mm -hmm. of trans youth in public schools. I thought, well, in trans the long rights run, this just is got be put good. on the front burner in a right. big way. Which but who has to suffer in the meantime is the question. Well, yes. Uh, yes. And that's a, that's, that's a horrible question to consider. And, and of course, those of us who are allies already then just need to pay attention and, I think and that's right. keep our eyes open and try to do what we can in real life yeah. when we see it happening to mitigate it, to get in the way, to right. try to stop it or to help the person. And I wondered about that a few years ago when we got into this surprise flowering of gay rights, really. Mm -hmm. I think that that equality yeah, movement very accelerated. accelerated as quickly as it did. I remember thinking, well, well, we may have talked about it as the trans rights movement started to kind of get on that momentum and say, we're of a piece, we're suffering terribly from the same kinds of discriminations. And I remember thinking, ooh, that's going to be a tough one because we're talking about a small population in numbers. Right. Well, this goes right to your point, which is that I think those of us who are surprised by the acceleration of a focus on gay rights or trans rights are obviously those whose lives are not at stake. I hear that even as you put right. it that way. I think you're right on target. Yeah. I think this also makes a good point for the strength of using media correctly because you look at a show like um, Transparent, mm. which had a huge impact I think on getting trans issues to be a bigger part of the culture because when you have millions of people watching this television show then they all of a sudden start talking about and really great who artists may, may not have necessarily know right. someone mm -hmm. right right that's a good point and then here is where now we, we can connect the dots conversation we were having before we started recording about art expressing mm -hmm. the zeitgeist and then helping to further it because it's of it but it helps us see the mm -hmm. framing, mm -hmm. right? So the artists are kind of pointing at it because they don't let us otherwise, right? Great art. The number one thing it does right. is it breaks down any otherization that exists as it connects human beings, mm -hmm. I think. Could we look for then rays of hope, rays of sunshine <laughs> in that maybe Donald Trump is prompting us to have to have conversations about Because I've seen, for instance, a couple of terms come into more common use that I think are really useful, like unconscious bias, mm -hmm. rather than you're a racist, right? Right? No, we are all a product of the time and place we are from, and we all have biases that we don't know about. Right. And the classic example, I'm walking down the street at night, and a young black man with a hoodie is walking, and I immediately think something, anything other than, hey, person, you know? Right, right. And of course, you can't escape that. All of us are from a context, but the term, reframing it, calling it unconscious is really important because it allows me to say, oh, I didn't see that there. It's and not that I'm not responsible for it. Right. That's the key. Yeah. I was ignorant. Now I see it. Now I can do something about it and take responsibility in an That's affirmative right. way. Right. I completely agree with that. And I mean, I think that you're focusing on responsiveness goes to what I take the greatest hope in, which is the conversations now about free speech. And I mean, it sounds like a horrifying thing to say, but on some level, I attribute this and the national discourse about this becoming more complicated to morons like Richard Spencer, which is increasingly the conversation about free speech is shifting away from the right to speak and toward a recognition that free speech involves responsiveness and responsibility. That's a change in my lifetime. I mean, I think that yeah, that, I that matters. I agree. 
I'd still punch him in the what neck is, too. I, I was about to but say, I mean, what is, so what does it say? I was, my, my moral conflict in enjoying that video of seeing get punched so much. But what does it say about the culture then that people immediately re- grabbed that and remixed it and put all kind of music on it and <laughs> right, just yeah. took great joy in the Nazi getting punched and made it an entertainment moment? Well, but I mean, I think that this goes back to what's, what's founding this podcast's uh, questions in part, which is that the presence of a Richard Spencer in the national media prompts that. In other words, in the same way that I'd want to say, you know, so I had this conversation with someone on Facebook. I was I expressed a message of support for the protesters at Berkeley who are protesting Yiannopoulos. Yiannopoulos, yeah. And uh, a person asked me on Facebook, do you continue to support these folks if it turns out that they were committing violent acts, especially if there were agitators among them who were expressly engaged in violence for that reason? And what I said is, even if it can be shown that that were true, Yiannopoulos's perspective speaking opportunity on campus still precipitated that. In other words, if we accept that free speech involves responsiveness and responsibility, Yiannopoulos's perspective speaking opportunity in Berkeley is responsible for the violence. It doesn't mean that people who engage in violent acts don't also bear responsibility, but it means that Yiannopoulos cannot attribute the entirety of that responsibility to the people who are demonstrating. And I think in the same way, the Richard Spencers of the world are responsible for remixed videos of them being punched in the neck, right? I mean, nobody's making videos of punching me in the neck. Maybe they will be after this podcast. But, <laughs> like, it strikes me that to elide that is to misunderstand discourse. That impulse to remix the punching of Richard Spencer is an impulse that doesn't arise arbitrarily, and it doesn't only arise based in particular technologies that enable remixes to happen. All of those things are true, but it also arises in direct response to Richard right. Spencer's Those are all speech. preconditions. Yes. The actual thing itself has its own right. reasons for being made and happening. And, so. and, and that's not quite only hyperreality. I guess that's the point. Richard Spencer's speech is still violent speech. And and I don't say that only within the frame of hyperreality. So in this, we're trying to sort out that, like I've said many times, when you talk to someone in a feeling context, an emotional context, that thoughts and feelings aren't real in a material sense. You can think whatever you like truly. You can feel all your emotions are okay. Words actions Those are real. Those go out into the world, right? So you are free to say anything you'd like to, but you are not free from responsibility exactly. of the effect of that action. And speech is an action. And this is what Yiannopoulos just found out. He just realized. The economically hard way. Yeah. And couldn't happen to a nicer Worst guy. person. Yeah. yeah, exactly. What they don't also realize is that the words and the actions become decoupled from their thoughts and their feelings. Because mm-hmm. to them, they're Absolutely. all they're all one and they make sense to them, but they don't understand how... Once it becomes just the words and the actions, they'll be interpreted. That's all, I, that's all we that's, have. That's all we right. have to That's all the rest of us have. Uh-huh. That's it's, a terrific point because I think above all the other things he misunderstands, it's the thing that our current president doesn't understand. And as appalling an individual as I might find him, it's the thing that George W. Bush still understood. And if I see a crossing of the Rubicon at all, it's that the Trump presidency and his apologists, not just him as an individual— seem to misunderstand what you just said, Anthony, which is that when you say something on a Twitter account or in any other context as the president of the United States, it doesn't matter what you intended. You said it. And he doesn't seem to understand that. And Conway doesn't seem to understand that. And Spicer doesn't seem to understand that. And 
as far as I could tell as someone who lived through eight years of it, the Bush administration still understood, respected that, and acted accordingly. And that feels like a real change. Is this how it's so easy for Trump and his cohort to otherize? Because they're not thinking about other people. I mean, that's the only way you could maintain what you describe, Anthony, that it's your fault that you don't understand the continuity between my thoughts, feelings, and my words. Right. Like it's your fault for assuming that my words were supposed to speak for themselves. Well, and Trump says almost exactly that whenever a reporter attempts to quote him or to reframe a question that was previously asked. He says something that's terrifyingly like what you just said, Stuart, which is, well, if you're going to take my words and quote them back to me, you must be an ineffective journalist. And it's like, wait, do you not know who a journalist is? Okay, and so do you yeah. not know who you are? That like, would, in any other age, right, you would go, well, that's clinical narcissism or something's broken, right? right? But his whole cohort, it's like they're so in the solipsism of their narrative, uh, their hyper-reality has convinced, because you can sustain that solipsism in a way now that you never could before. Well, and one thing that's terrifying to me on exactly that front is the person in the current administration who seems to most clearly understand what we're talking about right now, and who, when he rarely makes public comments, as he just did, actually seems to acknowledge that words have their own force, is Bannon. I mean, he's the terrifying thing to acknowledge is, despite their power, in fact, other than their power, I can't see any evidence that the people currently involved in the Trump White House have the first clue about how speech works. I think Bannon understands it more deeply than I do. And that's that's frightening to me. Yeah, which is why he wrote the inauguration speech and why he wrote it very specifically with very specific long-term historical ideologies in mind with what he was yeah. getting at. I think that's right. In a lot of ways, that's that's the most frightening thing of all. Like, it's easy to argue that any given president is just a puppet and that these people, you know, that what Halliburton idiot, what's his name, Cheney, that Cheney is really <laughs> running the show and that George Bush is just a puppet, right? And it's easy to make fun of that. But I think that the problem is that it really does feel as if the Trump administration, not just Trump himself, acts as if words are meaningless. And that's the understanding of hyperreality that's chilling to me. Because again, my argument would be if we recognize hyperreality as a context in which we live, it heightens the impact of understanding discourses and frames in a more refined and nuanced way. And I think that the Trump administration, other than Bannon, seems to suggest that, well, because we live in a context of the hyperreal, all utterances are meaningless. And that's much more frightening to me. But I think in some ways, easier to defeat, right? I mean, I think as human beings, as audience members, as citizens, we do still yearn for meaning. I think that even the millions of people who voted for the Trump presidency are people who yearn for meaning. I don't want to entirely dismiss that electorate. I think that the fact that they act in the Trump presidency and the Trump White House as if words are meaningless gives me some hope. The fact that Bannon is the one who seems to understand what's actually happening with discourse gives me less hope. When fascism came to the United States, thank goodness it was in a clown car. Is that what uh, you're saying? Yikes. <laughs> Maybe we got lucky yeah. that they're just mostly idiots. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> that when you, when you learn about Nazi Germany, you discover that Hitler was the dumbest of all of them, right? And, and I'm not sure if that's heartening or disheartening in the current context. <laughs>
Bannon certainly is the one who understands how to manage and handle right. Trump right. as a you know an asset or a trained animal or something that well, you trot out to bark at the right times. Well, when he finally spoke in public about his own understanding of the presidency and its aims a couple of days ago, he sounded as if he's somebody who understands that the words of the president of the United States carry a certain force, apart from their intentions, apart from weird mouth noises and gestures that somebody might make while in front of a reporter. So I don't know what Unfortunately, that he's wielding them destructively. Yeah, and I think that's right. why he, in, he encourages all of Trump's worst impulses because he loves the chaos. <laughs> he loves the fact so, that... As he expressly his, admits. The that, chaos, yeah. he can thrive in the yeah, chaos. Beca- exactly. And because it constantly throws off balance, the people he wants to throw off balance by the fact that Trump's words ultimately don't matter to him the way he phrases them, so the way they come out makes everyone else have to deal with that. That's not Trump's problem. It ends right. up being everyone else's problem to make sense yeah. of what does he mean when he says words. Yeah. And where did he learn it? He learned it. Okay, so they learned it through the nascent political blogosphere on the internet. Right. On Breitbart, right? Andrew Breitbart started that blog out of right. nowhere, and it became this hugely influential right. media voice. And then he unexpectedly drops dead of a heart attack, and Bannon inherits it. They saw it happen. Bannon learns that comment boxes are not arbitrary. They yeah. are themselves a structured, systematic discourse. And he learned that he could type stuff into his computer, and then the next day, hundreds of thousands of people were parroting that framing. Right. And I actually think, going back to one place you started us, Stuart, which is this notion that particular technologies, particular media, have their own impact on how we understand and frame messages, and sometimes those effects are destructive. I absolutely think that one of the things that was a possibility that seemed to be brewing in the 2008 general election, when President Obama earned a great deal of praise for effectively using social media within the electoral process, really for the first time, an opportunity was lost there, which was an opportunity gained for Stephen Bannon, which is to recognize that despite the fact that trolls exist everywhere on the internet, and despite the fact that comment boxes, even in mainstream press situations like comment boxes on the New York Times or the Washington Post, will immediately lead us to the perception that the general reading public is ignorant and barely functionally literate, Bannon was the first person before anybody on the left in this country to recognize that doesn't mean that discourse is not systematic. It doesn't mean that discourse is meaningless. Bannon understood that. And I think he understood it before anybody on the left did. And I think in some ways that's something we need to account for because while I don't agree with Michael Moore or Bernie Sanders that this whole electoral process would have somehow been magically different if we had just found a way to appeal to the white working class, I think that does trivialize the racism and sexism at the heart of this electoral process. Average Trump voter earns 70000 a year. There you go. Thank you for that stat. But with this in mind, I do think that one thing we should feel shame about on the left is treating the general American public, not just Republicans, but the general American electorate. I mean, if you look at Hillary Clinton's campaign strategies and the ways in which she did not have boots on the ground, especially in spaces where it's important, I think I'm not a political strategist or a political scientist, but what I do think that reflects that's at the heart of our podcast discussion today is a cynical dismissal of the relevance and the meaning of discourses like those that the Bannons of the world have capitalized on, and that prior to him, the Roves of the world capitalized on. I detest Karl Rove and Stephen Bannon and all of their values. There is one thing I respect about them, which is that they treat people that the left is willing to treat as ignorant and irrelevant as relevant, even if it's cynically. And that's where the charge of elitism rings true, maybe. Absolutely. That we just think, well, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. 
So, so now I dismiss them, which right. is otherizing. Right. I'm not listening to what they're actually trying to express, however imperfectly they express it. They may rant and say all these crazy stuff, but the feeling they're feeling, that's true, right? And like Anthony was saying, to them, they understand where their anger is coming from. They know that maybe they're not that good with words, but they're like, you can hear the anger, right? So why are you not listening to me? And someone like me may say, but your words are foolish words. And that's why I think they so can I don't listen to them. connect as voters with Trump. And that's what I hear so much is they say he talks like me and he sure. thinks like me. Right. So how do we get out of this? What do we do? Well, I mean, I, I think one thing that I would suggest is something we we're just talking about, but that relates to the earlier conversation about having a more nuanced understanding of how messages work and how frames work. I think it's already happening. I think Bernie Sanders is reflective of this. It's necessary for the American left to develop a coalition that, first of all, embraces diversity in a real way, not in a lip service way, but in a real way with community-based organizing. And that will necessitate moving past a cynical dismissal of a huge portion of the electorate as ignorant. When I see television right now, televised responses to town hall meetings and other contexts where Republican representatives to Congress are being called out, obviously that's happening in our local region with Denham. I called his office multiple times. He's not doing a town hall this time. I'm not surprised. He's doing the quote telephone town hall. Oh, what I just I was too I'd like busy to teach now. all my classes. Yeah. Via telephone When's the too. next re- congressional recesses in the summer? Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm going right. to use the indivisible guidebook. We're going to kick Denim out. We're going to have a town hall, whether he's here or not next time. I no, I wanted to do it this time. Just work and life, <laughs> and which is what he counts on. And Denim counts on having a rural district. There's a, you know, there's from a working class sort of congressional district, folks aren't going to get activists as quickly. The people who are angriest at Republican representatives seem to be white working class and lower middle class voters. And I think that that's important for the left to recognize, not merely in a cynical attempt to how are we going to get their votes for 2018 Mm -hmm. in a midterm election, Newt Gingrich style, but more importantly, to understand how to build a meaningful progressive party on the left. What are you just allude to 1994? I did. The the contract for America and the Jack. I was alive then, chillingly enough. Oh, man, don't tell me. Yeah, that was the start of all the. Yeah, okay. But we should understand what a progressive party in this country would mean to a person in, for instance, Iowa, who's in his 50s or 60s and recognizes that no one in his family will ever make close to $100,000 a year. What does that voter need? What does that voter need in progressive candidates, both locally and nationally? How do you even get, well, the first thing that would have to happen, one of the reasons I think Sanders was so successful in his campaign and would have cut across former party conceptions and allegiances is that he was able to signal authenticity in a yes, way that very few Democratic politicians have been able to do for a long time. I agree. Now, I would argue that's still a media image. Absolutely, he's, he's but he understands that yeah. he has to have a media right. image. None of us can go out and be our real selves and appeal to a broad swath sure. of people. Yeah. None of us I have a like professor that. image we're, in the class. We're, we're all specific yeah. people. Right. Right. But if I'm going to go out and assume that role, then I've got to be savvy about, okay, you just want to find someone who's not cynical right. or manipulative in the way that they're wanting to do it. And I strongly agree with what you say. And at the same time, I want to ask about the gender politics of this. And here's why I bring it up. I hail Elizabeth Warren, who's for the most part, whose politics sort of map mine well, even if I'm imagining in 2020 all the T-shirts that say, nevertheless, she persisted right during her campaign for the presidency. In order to be an effective leader, the way that she performs her gender is quite similar to the way that Hillary Clinton performs her gender. And I think that 
as somebody who teaches a communication and gender class, I think, sadly enough, that will continue to alienate a portion of the electorate. Is that because of a deeply seated history of sexism? Absolutely. Does it have everything to do with what kinds of candidates can hold a beer and stand in a town hall meeting and seem as if they are of the people? Absolutely. Because Joe Plummer is always Joe with an E, not just J-O, right, in our consciousness. Right, right. And, and that has everything to do with deep-seated sexism. And so I'm not sure how we get out of that. I think that it is a problem for Elizabeth Warren, and it makes her a problematic candidate. It doesn't mean I don't want her to be a strong candidate. It means I think we continue to live in a society in which the performances that will create and sustain an effective media image still rule out certain kinds of people. Do you think that the example that comes to mind, of course, he's male, is Barack Obama, that not only how he looks, but when you talk to him, he sounds like a professor, and he never doesn't sound like a professor. I agree. But watching, especially in the 08 campaign, how he would disarm people. Absolutely. Like literally the camera would be on, and you'd see him do it. Right. And they say, oh, he's so charming. Yeah. It wasn't, actually. Bill Clinton, that's the charm thing. But Obama, I mean, he was charismatic, but... Well, you've just used the right word. There was an authenticity. He was unassuming, and he was other-focused. He would meet the Midwest farming family that was struggling. Right. I mean, of course, he knew those folks. He grew up in Iowa, partly, but he would talk to them in an unassuming, authentic, real, genuine way. I think you've used exactly the right word. So many people who study media and elections put a really important marker at the 1960 national election and argue that what the Nixon campaign was blindsided by is the impact of television, which enabled... Right, that famous debate. Right, which enabled a visually charismatic candidate who was apparently less qualified and apparently further removed from the heart of the American electorate's values to suddenly carry the day. Narrowly, but carry the day. I have yet to see anything in the 56 years and 14 elections since then that suggests that that assessment is inaccurate. So... I absolutely believe that ever since 1960, in every single case, incumbent or not, moron or not, the person who's won the presidency has been the more charismatic candidate. If you ask yourself what seems like a difficult question to answer, which is who in the world is less charismatic than Jimmy Carter? Gerald Ford is a good answer. (laughs) Who in the world is less charismatic than Papa Bush? Michael Dukakis is a good answer. I have yet to see anything that that changes this. Is this gendered and raced? Of course it is. But as horrific as he is, Donald Trump is more charismatic than Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah. So do you you think a woman, well, and I hate to frame the question this way because it occurs to me that the factor may be less gender than age. It may be that Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren are both women of the baby boomer generation. Sure. And so when they perform as strong women, it comes off a certain way. It's second wavy. Yeah. I mean, that's how I see it. As somebody who studies the history of feminism, they look like second wave feminists. So do you they think, look like daughters of Betty Friedan, right? I mean, yeah. Do you think a younger woman, not not a young woman, but a younger woman who had the emotional intelligence sure. and the communicative genius, really, uh, acumen that uh, Barack Obama had, oh, like sure. his wife, Michelle, or this could, woman could who, they sidestep that and absolutely. be the person who breaks the... That's what we're going to need, right? You need somebody who just kind of moves around it. I feel terrible because I can't remember her name, but the woman who just won the senator seat in Nevada, I think is an excellent example of this. I think she's somebody who is obviously charismatic enough to win a national position. But I think that you might be right. I think that when we think about the intersecting impact of race and gender, one thing it suggests is that we may have already generationally moved past a point in which 
a Hillary Clinton or an Elizabeth Warren or a Nancy Pelosi or a Barbara Boxer can appeal to the general electorate nationally. That's absolutely possible. Catherine Cortez Masto. That's the one. name. Yes. And I think she's an example of what you're talking about. Or our Senator Harris, potentially. I mean, these are good examples of the kind of person you're talking about. And I don't think it's a coincidence that these are women of color. I think that there are ways in which white women are coded. So what does it jam the frame then? Maybe. Like a little bit because it's a woman, but she doesn't look like right. the matronly school marm. The less you look like Nancy Pelosi, the more likely you are to get any vote outside of Northern California if you're a woman. I mean, I just think that that's true. I like Nancy Pelosi, but I think that that's true. <laughs> so are we going to survive <laughs> Donald Trump long enough to figure this well, stuff out? The three of us in this room will because we're white men. Yeah. I mean, I, that it's hard not to put it that way. I have long-term hope. I have short-term fears for people about whom I care. It just depends on how quickly we can do what you described, which is, and, and, and in this way, it's helpful. It's been a catalyst to see the framing, to be more critical about media. And certainly with the exponential shift in media that the internet brought, hmm. it's fundamental, even though it's in a lot of ways, it's just a combination of technologies we already had. We better develop that savvy, that critical hmm. detachment a little bit and maybe quickly to get out of the era of truthiness, to get through yeah. it. And to become more, more savvy managers of communication, because I think that is what the hyper-real context demands of us. So no more arithmetic. It's now media, critical media studies. Don't tell the common core folks. For that. elementary school. That's, you know, I don't say that facetiously. Well, not no more arithmetic, but there is an argument maybe that we need to not displace other subjects, but reframe what is elementary subject matter in the subjects we teach, maybe. Well, and I do, to their credit, I think that many of the folks who developed the Common Core Initiative, despite all of the ways in which people push back on them, are trying to do exactly that. It's why there's the focus on the construction of arguments from texts as a part of the Common Core, is I think there is a recognition that media literacy means something a little more complex than don't quote Wikipedia in a research paper, right? <laughs> I mean, I think that the Common yeah. Core folks understand that and are trying to move in that direction. Yeah, they're trying to get the ability to take an in information, process it, and know how to look for more. Right. It's creating that process of mm -hmm. learning of how do we actually synthesize information into useful, actionable content. And, Absolutely. and contextualize it to have some savvy about whether it's reliable. Right, or, yeah. yeah, so you can ask the right questions, yeah. And this goes back to a point you made earlier, Stuart, and using language this way. I think that being literate is a verb and not an adjective. You can't simply attach the label media literate to some group of people. I think it's something that is about active construction of a relationship to the world. It's more of a verb, right? I am right. I am engaged in being media literate rather than I am media literate. And I think that goes to your point, Anthony. And it could come from somewhere you wouldn't necessarily think. Like, I would argue like the Wu-Tang Clan, some of the most media literate people ever because they understood how to create a whole collective of people and personas that would go throughout movies, TV, and music and are signposts of who is doing this kind of stuff successfully. I don't think is being recognized very well. Yeah, I think that's a good point. We're not paying attention to the right teachers, <laughs> the yeah, people who have uh -huh. it figured out. Or some of us aren't, and some, some of are. us aren't. Some or someone like, maybe, like hey, Donald maybe. Glover is the ultimate example of this. Well, maybe there's our next episode to follow this, is we identify people who are <laughs> who, who get it and who we can learn from. Who are the examples we can point to? Yeah. All and right. You just got to get them to come on the program. Yeah, well, I'll work on Donald Glover. Nice. He's not busy these days, I <laughs> no. hear. He's got that Han, some movie about a character named Han Solo. I don't know what that is. <laughs> anyway... 
Keith, thank you for being here on the show. This is fascinating. This has been fascinating. I want to keep talking, but there's a lot here to digest too, I think. Thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.